Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the Introspectives in HE podcast. In this conversation, you'll hear me talk to Fiona about a range of topics that tie into our season of identities. So it was really interesting to get her take on what it's like to work in higher education from her viewpoint. All right, let's get started. So sorry, I just had to, I was asked to move rooms because the ceiling's falling down. Oh no! Um, so I'm, I'm so, so sorry about this. Um, can, can you, would you mind answering the what are your greatest accomplishments question again? Yes, no problem. Or actually, or do you want to just start from the beginning again? Okay, so I'm so sorry. Um, so we'll just start again. Um, okay, so who are you in higher education? Um, my role is the Dean of Students and Head of the Centre for Excellence in Learning and Teaching. Okay, and what would you say are your greatest accomplishments in higher education? Um, they include um, winning um, an award for um, Women in Leadership, um, I won a regional award last year, um, that somebody nominated before. Um, also, um, having the opportunity to have my work published. And um, I've been very fortunate to be able to work with other countries on Erasmus projects, uh, which are funded projects, which enable me to work with researchers and academic staff in uh, different European countries, particularly on education and gender. And I sometimes get asked to do really nice things like um, interviewing authors. We, have, we host a book festival at Derby and um, we are the key sponsor. So I often get invited to um, interview the authors. And so I recently interviewed uh, Dolly Alderton. And um, a few years ago, I had the opportunity through the university to perform at the Edinburgh Festival, where I took a one-woman show to the festival for a week. Oh, that's so amazing. Sorts of yeah. Um, and so related to that, what... What are your personal and professional challenges in higher education? Um, I think a key one is uh, just being a woman in higher education because everything about the education system was developed from a patriarchal perspective. Um, So if you go back into the realms of time to where education was first um, created and conceived, it was really within the church and it was really about ensuring that boys were educated and that men were educated for society and women were deemed not to be. And as a result, not to be worthy of um, being educated, but as a result of that, the education system, uh, right through from um, schooling into higher education, as well as other institutions actually, but particularly education, still um, have some of those um, male, um, some of the male language and some of the that sort of male approach that hasn't yet been shaken off, um, although it's better than it used to be, um, I still think that that's a challenge in higher education. Um, I think that's probably a key one. Um, I think also sometimes being taken seriously is um, a challenge, particularly when 
you've worked in an institution for quite a long time and people have seen you move from role to role, um, that can be a challenge as well. Mm. Um, and just to ask you more explicitly, how do you think being a woman in higher education is more difficult than being a man in higher education? Um, so, I think men are taken more seriously. Uh, there was a, an article on the radio just this morning where we're talking about women in higher education don't get the really good lecturing roles. Um, there's evidence that suggests that students take or that students uh, will score their male lecturers more highly than they'll score their female lecturers. Oh, wow. um, and there's evidence to support that that's been done over the years. So I think those sort of, it, it, it is about being taken seriously. It's about, I think, the, because the world is still, whilst it's changing, we still have challenges. So um, men are still seen to be the person to ask questions about particular things. And whilst ever we have that, I think the whole of society will still be focused towards that sort of um, male being the more serious person in the room um, to pay attention to than the female necessarily. In like, what social capital do you, or what social or cultural capital do you think that men have in higher education that women don't or is perceived not to have? That's an interesting question. I was talking um, to dinner a few weeks ago with somebody and um, I was, we were talking about some of these things and he's probably about the same age as me and he was saying the way that we've been brought up means that we behave in particular ways and some of us have been brought up differently to other people um, but the way that he perceived uh, women, he said even though he doesn't necessarily always see it, it's like an embedded part of him because of the way that his dad was and the way that his mother was. Mm. So I think one of the things about the sort of social and cultural capital is what the relationship is like with your parents at home and how men, how your father treats your mother, um, whether you've got a male and a female role model at home. And I think just the fact that some of the social and cultural approaches and attitudes are entrenched from birth. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we're only just now starting to see males take parental leave. Right. Um, you know, paternity leave as opposed to it only ever being maternity leave. So, you know, I think that's a great thing because it means that men are seeing that it's as important for them to be bringing up their children as it is for the women to bring up the children. But I think that that, from a social and cultural capital perspective, means that we've still got a long way to go because there are entrenched behaviours and attitudes about the role of women in society generally and that that feeds into higher education. Um, I'm going to ask you a very (laughs) sweeping question, but um, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, for the uh, attainment gap, for example, the um, Theresa May said that it will probably take around 20 years minimum to close that attainment gap. And this is between um, BME students and white students. So like there are always figures predicted like, oh, in whatever years this will will achieve this, whatever, whatever. Um, in terms of this imbalance between the two genders, when do you think we'll achieve like, gender equity? I know, that's very sweeping. <laughs> well, I think we're further ahead um, 
Actually, you just reminded me when I was delivering outreach, when we were doing career outreach, certain um, certain uh, female students would say like, oh, I want to be a scientist. I want to um, be the prime minister, you know, reaching very high, which is fantastic. Um, and then there were a few girls that said, I know what my options are, but I, I you know, I, I want to take care of kids. Like, I want to be at home. And they were just saying like, this is my choice. Thank you for telling me, but this is my choice. And they're also very, very adamant. And I just thought, well, we are advocating for a society where you should have choice and you should do what you want. But then it's just what you mentioned about the entrenched culture of societal roles that I'm just cringing. Um, But but then again, like, who am I to (laughs) say, no, you cannot do this? Well, I think you make a very good point there about the choice, but it's about being properly informed about what that choice means. So, you know, when we when we look, we can see that women who've had families, I haven't had children, so I haven't had any time off work, I've just worked all the way through. But, you know, we, we do know that many of those women that took um, a fair amount of time off in order to bring up their families, um, that their career trajectory is different to other women who haven't been, who haven't had to do that, or haven't chosen to do that and some of them not all of them but some of them haven't earned as much money or won't earn as much money um, and in some circumstances what they are also doing is enabling their husbands to succeed so as a family unit they're probably doing really well um, but equally as an individual uh, as somebody whose career gets put on hold as long as you've got the choice and you're making an informed decision and you know what it means to take a career break or whatever and how that might impact and that's fine if, if people have, don't understand the choices and aren't properly informed or educated. So I think there's just still more work to do with young people around. I think it probably starts to change as they progress into their career. But I think there are, there are education pieces that we could be doing. Mm. I mean, that's you're so right. I mean, it just occurred to me while you were talking that um, 
like for example like i mean like when i was younger you know we were taught about all these choices and aspire high or you know whatever it was but um i just realized i've gotten to a certain point in my personal career where i'm hit with all these questions and i know that it's a worldwide thing all women face these questions but it hit me all at once and no one's really told me about it before um but i know that they're questions that men don't face so for example um if you if you finally find your passion in life and you start your career you have to ask yourself even if if you don't want kids inevitably because you have all these exposures around you you have to ask yourself do i want kids and i have a biological time limit great yeah you know it's all these things that I, we don't teach young people but at the same time i'm sure if i were 14 and someone told me that i'd just be terrified so yeah. what would you say that balance is like how how would we drip feed that information i think it, it, it just goes back to making sure that people are informed about you don't have to be the only person that takes leave, you don't have to be the only person that's about two of you in a relationship together, you can do it all on your own if you're on your own, you don't have to have a, I have a friend who has uh, chosen to actually want to have a baby, she wasn't in a relationship, she has had a a donor. So, um, you know, there are are lots of different ways of, of approaching life and it's about knowing what they all are and understanding what the implications of them all are and then just being able to make a choice. And I don't think people always recognise what the different choices are for them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what it's about, is about laying those things out. But I think you, you're right. We do have to be careful that we don't frighten people at 14. <laughs> yeah. But equally, what we're saying to young people now is, what are you going to do for a job? Well, how would they know that at 14? Unless they're one of those people. I mean, I was one of those people. I wanted to be a teacher. So, and I knew what my career trajectory would be as a result of doing that, and I knew I had to go to university in order to be a teacher, and so there was a certain path that kind of became laid out for me because I knew that's what I wanted to do. But if you don't know what to do, why are we forcing people down these pathways? So I just think being really well educated and really well informed at the right stages in life, and and I think everybody's different, so some people at 14 are much more mature than other people at 14. But I think as you start the world of work, um, or as you're going, you know, if you're starting to go to university, those things, just to recognise that the world has changed and our roles don't have to be as laid out as they used to be. Mm, That's a good point. Um, So I I think I mentioned this to you before, but, um, you know, it's, it's really difficult to ask you, Um, You know, well, basically, there's so many questions to ask you and different angles to do it because, you know, I can go on the perspective of you as a um, woman in higher education, as an academic, as a researcher, as a dean of students. You know, there's so many angles that you can provide, which is so interesting. And this question flows into your research, research uh, identity. (laughs) Um, Okay. So I'll put this quote and article like in the show notes, but essentially um, you said that um, it's important, well, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but this just reminded me, our conversation reminded me of this quote, but you said, um, essential thinking needs challenging to ensure young people are able to negotiate their personal identity in more fluid ways. And we've just brought up the fact that it doesn't seem as fluid right now. We still have a lot more work to do. So just in terms of that article and what you've written, um, can you just elaborate a bit more? Yeah, I suppose what we, again, what we need to do is, it doesn't necessarily, this isn't necessarily an education piece, but it's an understanding piece. Mm-hmm. 
everybody's experience is different. I was reading something um, by Hannah Simpson from Ipsos Mori the other day, and she was writing about the fact that millennials will, as they move into their uh, more adult lives, or as they're moving into their adult lives, there's research that demonstrates that they are less um, bounded by the binary descriptions of gender. And so there's a much more fluid approach to um, the relationships that they choose to have. And I think that's what I um, was alluding to around essentialist thinking. So we, we should challenge heteronormativity just as we should challenge um, misogyny or um, sexism or racism. We should be challenging heteronormativity as well because it's the only um, relationships and it's the only ways that we present to young people are the ones that we see the most of. It doesn't mean it's the norm. It just means it's what we happen to see the most of right now. And I think that that's problematic. So at the moment, young people do generally see a man and a woman. They are, they still expect that relationships are heterosexual relationships. When actually, our, young, our millennials particularly are starting to say and demonstrate that that essentialist approach doesn't exist anymore because they see themselves in a whole different light to mm -hmm. um, how young people saw themselves 10, 15 years ago. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to have another wave of real change. I think it's coming anyway. I think the LGBT community um, is really positive at the moment. There's a really positive movement with that. Um, and the Stonewall reports demonstrate that there's still a lot of work to do, but we can see that we, well actually, we can see that we've moved forward, but in some respects we've also moved backwards. So, um, I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and someone presented a map of these, these are the countries that were very far ahead 10 years ago, and in the last three years, they've all shifted back by about 30% in terms of how well they were doing. Uh, with gender, with particularly LGBT issues. So I think the point of, of that statement that I made was um, was around just challenging norms or perceived norms or traditional norms because they don't exist anymore and they shouldn't exist. Um, and people will argue with me about that. <laughs> women are women and the men are men. But that's fine for me to say because I am a woman. I identify as a heterosexual. Um, woman, and I don't have, but for me, there, there isn't anything else that's complicated in that, but there are other people whose experiences are different, and who am I to say that their experience isn't valid, and that their, what they feel and what they uh, want for themselves shouldn't be taken seriously, just because I don't experience what they do, and that's really important, we should be taking these experiences and stories and listening to people really seriously, so that they can be who they need to be as a person in the world. As long as it's not harmful to people, they're not hurting people, which let's face it, if you want to change gender, why would that be harmful to somebody if you knew that you actually needed to be a man, not a woman? Because everything else about you says that you are, you were just born in the wrong body. Well, so I have a two-part question. So let's say we have two students and they are, um, their immediate environment is predominantly white, uh, straight members of society. And so the first student 
um, is really is a, let's say uh, she or he is a um, member of the LGBT community and they're white, but they're really struggling um, to find a sense of belonging and an identity. And let's say the other student is from also from the LGBT plus community, but is also within the BAME community. Um, what advice would you tell both students in terms of them struggling to find a sense of belonging? Um, I think what I would, yeah, that's a really tough question. Okay. I think there's something in here about a sense of belonging. And if they're in a, so if they're in a, are we talking about these people at university, you say? Um, yes, let, let's assume that they're in higher education. So if, if they're both in higher education, I have to look to what we are doing in higher education that's making them feel like they don't belong. So if they're struggling with their identity from an LGBT perspective, then in our university we all wear rainbow lanyards or most people wear, there's a choice, you don't have to wear a rainbow lanyard, but actually the majority of staff and students do. That immediately should say to that person, we believe in social change, which is what the rainbow really stands for, which has been adopted by the LGBT community, but we really believe in social change. We are LGBT friendly, we are role models and we are allies. I think being a black student, or from the BNE, BNA, um, um, the BMA background there's an added complication because you're also struggling to fit in to a, a probably and most likely if I think about English institutions a predominantly white institution as well mm-hmm. so um, I think it's about ensuring that we bring together communities of students um, so that they can work together to have a voice so I would be asking them to join the play, join the different um, societies where they can feel part of a community. I would be asking them to make sure that they're feeding back how things are for them through the, their reps that are on their programmes or through the different opportunities that exist for having your voice heard. But also, as an institution, what we should be doing is changing what we look like in order to make sure that those students don't struggle with their identity because they should just come to university and be able to feel part of it. If they don't, it means that we've got it wrong. So therefore, our role models and allies scheme that we would need to be stronger. The um, pictures that we put out need to be bolder and need to really demonstrate that more diverse society uh, within the university community. Um, and I would ask those people to help me to do that so that they feel that they're making a positive change in supporting the identity of themselves but also others. Mm. Um, just on top of that, though, how would you respond to those who say, oh, we've already dealt with those issues? So, for example, um, in regards to... Um, like race equality, you know, some members of like the university might say, oh, we're already a part of the race equality charter. We've increased our diversity targets. We've, we've done that. And for um, disabled students or staff, they might say, we have a two-tick scheme. We've, uh, I don't know, established um, uh, 
sorry, handicap friendly like bathrooms. And then for the LGBT plus community, they might say, oh, we, we're wearing like lanterns. Like what more do you want? Like stop beating the race drum. Like why do we have to care? Um, and I think from my personal experience, it's sad to say, but there have been members of universities where they have explicitly made those sentiments. And how would you as a senior member of a university respond to those sentiments? Because it's not about the test. So a, a rainbow lanyard can only do so much. It can be actually very tokenistic if the culture isn't embedded across the institution. So for that BAME student, what they should be able to see in their programme is that we are talking about the work of um, diverse authors, researchers, writers, etc. Um, that the work that of people across a diverse sector is acknowledged within their programme of study, that their curriculum reflects all aspects of our society, not simply the white, grey-haired old men of the past. Mm-hmm. So, sorry to be down on the men on that particular <laughs> one, but there is something really important about things being embedded. So, yes, we can have a role model scheme, yes, we can have a lanyard, yes, we can have badges, I've just got a new badge on my lanyard that's got a rainbow on it, but actually I could wear that and it not mean anything at all. So everything has to be embedded at the point of um, discussion, and that is about the university changing what it does, rather than the students having to change. They should feel part of the community by seeing that we're serious about it because it's embedded. And I think that word is absolutely key. It has to be embedded so that the entrenched values become the ones of diversity and inclusion and not the ones that are barriers to it. Mm. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if we were all entrenched in inclusion? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And yet we're not, you know. um, And some people would say they are, but institutionally wide, I think most universities would say, that they're still, you know, sort of battling with that, but that's where it has to start. So, you know, um, really examining the curriculum and really examining what the, the... The reading list is only one very small part of that. So people talk about decolonising a reading list. It could be about more than that because the reading list, again, can be a tick box, tokenistic approach to the curriculum. It has to be embedded within the curriculum. And that means that... Um, people that get brought in to talk to students or the films that we watch or whatever it is that we're doing in programme should be as diverse as it possibly can be and show people from the LGBT plus community but also from a disabled community and also from the BAME community and if we don't do that as well as our, you know, every facet of community is what should be in our curricula from the word go and whilst we're not doing that we're not actually being true to our uh, commitment to inclusion. Um, speaking of embedding um, <laughs> equality into the culture, um, I I understand that in order to like make change, it's just a reality that we have to have senior buy-in. So how do we... So we have to have what, sorry? Oh, sorry. We have, we have to have a senior buy-in um, oh, yeah. you know, at the higher level. And honestly... How do we get senior buy-in and how do we make sure that things happen at the policy level and at the lower level? Yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's a good question. We're very lucky because our Vice-Chancellor has become our sponsor for our attainment project, um, which will create a policy um, for our students around having a sense of belonging um, in the university. 
and because our vice chancellor has uh, put her name forward as the sponsor for that, it does mean that um, people are taking it seriously because there's an expectation that how the progress that we're making is being fed back to her and that she is able to see that there's progress being made. So <clears throat> it is really important to have that senior buy-in. Um, what you, where you have to be careful is that it doesn't feel like it's a top-down approach. Okay. So actually what you need, I, I really believe this, I think it needs to come from, you need a um, working with the staff or working with the student approach to also that senior approach and then coming together, kind of um, a pincer action almost, so that the people who are working with the students, who are with them day to day, who mark their work, who create the curricula, who design um, their programmes, etc., are considering all of those really important aspects of inclusion. That then can get fed through um, portfolio development boards, through um, the, the different ways in which the more senior members of the university community understand the programme design and, and how programmes are being put together. Um, but if it's only coming from the top, it won't get the buy-in that it needs from within the university community because people will feel that they're being done to and told to rather than encouraged and wanting to do something. So we're taking an approach with our attainment policy, for example, whereby um, all of our we're, we're consulting with all staff across the university and our students who come together to say, these are the things that we think we should be doing as a university community to support student attainment whether, from whichever protected characteristic um, you are thought you have, that we make sure that we really look after you and that that will come through our attainment policy, but we'll do that together as a community. And then you get ownership and then you get buy-in and then the senior leader, the sponsor, is happy because they can see that the university community have properly, are properly embedding it and bought into it. Otherwise, it just becomes an edict from the top and it doesn't work. Right. Um, so I, I think recently I've come across many, so, if, you know, this is Pride Month, I've come across an article where actually, um, people in, where I'm from originally, like in, in Boston, um, they have petitioned for a straight Pride, and then in lieu of the Me Too movement, I'm sure you've heard, um, men advocating for, a male version of that. Um, men have advocated for International Men's Day. Um, I, I can honestly just go on and on. Um, and there are proposals for a white ally group on campus. And I'm all for diversity, equality, and inclusion. But it's mo moments like that I see I get um, irrationally, well, I don't know, rationally angry. And I don't know how to have a constructive discussion with those types of people and as you're someone who engages and interacts with different types of staff and students frequently when you see reports like that how do you how do you deal with it but what we have to recognize is that they have not been oppressed groups for years and years and years, in fact, they've been this, if you like, I don't want to use terms like supremacy, but they've been the group that have, uh, you know, the white males in particular have had a dominant role in society. And now,
imagine, I think it's hard to explain it, if you had a, a temperature gauge and the mercury was going up, you know that red line that goes up right. um, in a temperature gauge, and if you imagine that that red line was up at the top because that was the white dominance at one point, you know, white male dominance. Mm. And then you've got another gauge on the other side that's um, about the LGBT community or women or disabled people or the MA community. That is a much lower gauge. And actually, rather than trying to get that gauge booked to the top, both of them, one of them should be shifting up and one of them should be shifting down so that you then end up with either them both at the top or them both in the middle somewhere so that neither of them has overtaken the other, but what we do is we just redress the balance. And so I think what we have to do is challenge those groups to say, you have not been an oppressed group. Mm. You have not had to fight for your rights. Your rights have just existed. Even when I think about things like, so <clears throat> I was reading a paper for a colleague um, a couple of years ago at a conference, and she'd written about heart attacks. And in fact, I challenged something on Twitter the other day where somebody had put about, um, if somebody next to you was having a heart attack, would you know what to do? And then they gave the um, information below about what that person would be experiencing. And I challenged it by saying, well, that's if you're a man. Because the symptoms that we know for a heart attack are the symptoms that men have when they have a heart attack. They're completely different for a woman. So whilst more men have heart attacks, more women die from them. Because they don't even realise that they're having one because they're not having the symptoms that we have come to know. More women are damaged in um, car accidents, are injured in car accidents, because the crash test dummies are based on the male physique. So these are hidden inequalities that we don't necessarily see. And these are the things that we can challenge that male, that white male feeling of you're challenging me as a white male. We need to use this evidence from history and from science to say these are real facts. These are genuine things that happen to people that we have created in our society that we actually need to say, if you're a man, you'll have a heart attack like this, but if you're a woman, it will feel like this. There are some women who like had, <laughs> who have heart attacks, and like four days later, when they still don't feel very well, have gone to hospital. That's crazy. Because their symptoms are completely different. Right. So uh, it, it's just fascinating. There's a book that's just recently come out, and I forget the, the author's name, who's written about all the hidden data about women. But I think this is what we need to do is use evidence to challenge. So we can go back and say, well, you know, you're just a man or whatever. But actually, if we use that, that kind of evidence, there's actually a group in Lithuania who have been set up, um, in Vilnius, I think it is, in Lithuania, who've been set up to look at inequality in society. And they look at things like, um, they'll look at medical reports that come in that show how many people had accidents during the snow period and they find that um, there are more women who've got broken bones because they're walking children to school and they're walking along the pavement. But the roads have been cleared. Mm. So actually what they're now doing is saying, well, let's clear the pavement first so that women can walk children to school and then we'll clear the roads because actually the cars are already designed to travel in snow. 
we'll clear the roads pretty quickly too because we don't want to have loads of car accidents, but we'll pay attention to the fact. And they've shown a decrease in the women who are slipping over in the snow. They're set up specifically to look at gender inequality. So if we use that evidence, I think we can start to fight back a little bit to say, hang on a minute, you've not been oppressed for years and years and years. You've not had to fight for your rights to exist, to be able to vote, to own your own home, um, and so on. You know, if I think about women in some of the African countries, I remember talking to somebody about equal rights, and she was saying up until recently, in the Gambia, for example, that when a man, when a husband dies, his brother has then owns the wife. Oh, wow. And she just gets passed along like a commodity. Now, they fought against that. In fact, the women live in uh, Gambia, uh, even though it's only recently um, sort of come to the fore, has been getting better. But they're those kind of things that are just appalling the treatment of women in society. And men have not had to fight against that. Just been there for them. So that's how I would, that's how I react to it, and that's how I feel about it. But using evidence to come back and say, hang on a minute. When have we ever heard about, uh, I forget how many it was, of the young girls that were all uh, kidnapped and taken um, to become the wives and the playthings of soldiers. Wait, the Boko Haram. The Boko Haram. When when do we hear about that happening to boys? So we do know that it happens too. We do know that there's a lot of children from the War Child Project, for example, where young boys have been taken to fight in war. And that's as wrong as the young girls being taken to be the, the brides of, um, of, of the um, terrorists, etc. But it happens in different ways, and, and, it, and it's always in a much more sexualized way for women than it tends to be for, for men. So said we could unpack it in just so many different directions um but um I, I definitely want to ask you before we have to wrap up as so as a dean of students and as someone who is in higher education how do you keep up to date on like the latest student issues and like the quote-unquote like I don't know like latest lingo um so like I go to lots of conferences um or to meetings or I talk to people who are involved in um, the work. I read and write about it, but I, I suppose um, my research is from a narrative perspective, so I really believe in the power of people's stories, and so I talk to our students. In fact, only the other week, I met with one of our students from um, uh, our transgender community um, to talk to them about their experiences in university and what we could be doing better to, to be as inclusive as we really want to be. So hearing people's stories of experience and what that means because if they're experiencing something that's negative, it means that there's something in our education system that we're not doing in the right way. 
therefore that we need to change that. So as a dean of students, I suppose I'm in a, a, a fantastic position to be able to make some of that change, to challenge uh, behaviours that I see, um, and to support the student's voice through hearing their stories. And it's only through being able to hear the... So you can read the facts and the figures. So we talked about evidence before. That's great, but it only goes so far. You, you also need the human story that sits alongside it because then that brings it to life. That then creates... It, we shouldn't be doing things based on empathy um, per se, but as soon as you bring facts and figures to life through it with a human experience, it changes how you feel about what you originally thought. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I'm in a very strong position to be able to do that and work with a fantastic team of people who can help to do that too. But I do think that we need to be challenging behaviours that we see and that we hear and that are happening. Um, um, and sometimes people do things because they think it's the right thing. I was talking to a group of colleagues um, yesterday who were just moving to anonymous market, for example. And somebody asked me, and it's not the first time I've been asked it, you know, we provide really personalised feedback and by doing that it means that I can say you've made really good progress from A to B and I suppose my uh, response back is that's fine because you know that particular student but what about all the students that you don't know or what about a student who's on a joint honours programme or what about a student who doesn't come to sessions quite as much or what about a student who has uh, joined the programme recently or what about a student who you know nothing about because they keep themselves themselves if we're not careful, we provide an advantage to some students more than others through feedback and so on. So what we have to be doing is making sure that when we're assessing, we assess what's in front of us as to the value of that piece based on a market rubric and the assessment criteria and keep the other things out of that um, because that piece of work should be marked on merit for that piece of work at that particular period of time. Um, and, it's, and I think the same thing goes with with everything is that yes, we do need to be on the lookout and listening and caring. But let's we can do we can still do that personalised bit through personal academic tutoring, through formative assessment activities, and so on. So um, yeah, I think it's it's a case of um, supporting all students and making sure making sure that nobody feels that somebody else's advantage is over there, which which can sometimes I think. Somebody asked me the other day, you know, what's the big thing about us all having rainbow lanyards? I always talk about the rainbow as social change as opposed to necessarily always being LGBT. Mm. But his question was a valid one because he's from a BNAE background. His question was valid. You know, what that means? Where am I represented in that? Mm. Which is why I said, well, it's about social change. But he's right because we do identify the rainbow with the LGBT plus community. So um, we're now actually creating um, something within the institution that will be our um, symbol, if you like, of inclusion that won't just be a signifier like a rainbow. It will actually be designed to encompass everybody to say we care about you all regardless of your background. Oh, amazing. So will that be a lanyard or a pin or a badge? Um, I'm not sure at the moment. I've just seen a flyer for it with a bit of text on the background. So um, I think it will be the sort of thing that go that can go on the bottom of emails. Um, so it will be electronic as well. And um, it could be a lanyard. Um, hopefully, it will be a lanyard because then what we do is um, move away from supporting one type of community 
and, and look to you know sort of spreading our wings a little bit with that. So yeah, hopefully it will be everything a badge, something electronic, a lanyard, um, email signifier, you know, an, an electronic badge, and so on. So yeah. Oh, that's so good. Um, and lastly, what? And again, like you can answer this as generally as you like, but what trends and themes are we seeing in higher education? Well, with the Office for Students, we're seeing regulation being really important and compliance for student success particularly. So uh, I think some of the trends are around the fact that we have now the, um, there is a, pleased that those attainment gaps are not just um, about disabled students. Um, we're looking at the BNAME community in that, but here at Derby we're also looking at our LGBT plus community as a check of their attainment gaps there. Um, also looking at the fact that split metrics, um, so everybody um, right across higher education is expected to um, know what the data looks like for their um, gender splits, for their age splits, for their commuter splits, and so on, so that we're really starting to understand students uh, as an as, as, as unhomogenized group. For so many years, they've just been clumped together as these students in higher education. I still hear people saying, oh, well, they've got into higher education, so they should be able to see their way through it. Oh, wow. so the, yeah, so I think the trends are around recognising that our students come from all sorts of different backgrounds, with widening participation, it's the expectation that we change some of our systems and processes to make sure that all students can navigate their way through that. And so that our first and family students um, see an easy way through the language and the systemic barriers that uh, they perceive. So things like induction are really good. I think there are trends to... Um, the role now, I rarely can present anything if it hasn't been um, um, benchmarked against the sector. What are other people doing? Why are other people doing that? What does their data look like? What does it look like for other Derby? What policy do we need to adopt in order to make sure that it's not just the right thing for our students, but also that it's bold and that it will make a difference? So, um, being much more outward facing, I suppose some of the trends are around digital, digital capabilities, but also the blend between face-to-face and digital learning. And that can be really supportive to lots of different um, students as well, as well as being a hindrance to how do we get that right. Um, I think there are greater pushes towards personal academic tutoring being really strong and not being seen as a pastoral thing anymore being seen as something that can support students all the way through higher education. And I think a really important trend is that if students come into higher education, we make sure that they succeed in it, that we don't have the dropout rates of the past, and that we don't take students um, and set them up to fail. Mm. But if we're taking them, that we make sure that we've provided the system to make sure that they succeed. Right. Yeah, retention efforts are equally as important as recruitment efforts. Would you yeah. agree? Yeah. So we talk about fair access talking about their progress mm. and I suppose you know what comes out the inside 
very big discussions at the moment about, well, with the Orga Review being um, published. And one of the things in there is about um, high subjects and degrees that have a high economic value. I think one of the things that we have to be a little bit careful with that is that there are a lot of degrees that are, um, that have social good. And if you think about people who do a degree in, uh, that gives them a public sector role, whether it be in the early years or um, some of the educational, particularly, or some of the roles where they're working um, with young people, not necessarily in school, but you're often not paid at the same level that maybe a qualified teacher or a doctor, well, teachers or doctors don't get paid anywhere near as much as each other. But if we're not careful, if all we look at is the high economic value of programmes, uh, oh, sorry, of, uh, yeah, of programmes, then what we will be doing is we'll fundamentally change our society. Yeah. Unwittingly. <laughs> and art subjects, arts are really important for people to be able to express themselves. I was listening to Alex Wheatley talk yesterday. He's the first black author to have won a prize, or won a literary prize in the 50 years that the prize has existed. So, you know, to just go back to what you were talking about before about why would make, you know, what do we say about white males who are fighting for their rights, but to be the first black person to have won a literary prize in the 50 years that the prize has existed, um, says something. And I was listening to him talking, and um, he was, and he was talking to young people about his experiences, and, you know, he's a black male, he was brought up in, in care, spent most of his life in care because his mum uh, left to go back to Jamaica, he was brought by his dad, his dad couldn't cope, and so on. But actually, um, these sort of themes that come through demonstrate that um, when we are working with students, we need to make sure that we don't just give them the access in, but we really support them all the way through, and that we help people like Alex Leeming to be able to be successful. And if he's, you know, he's uh, really promoting creative writing, but unless you're a million-selling author, you don't earn a lot of money by writing. But the arts are really important, and he has expressed his life through his books that are absolutely fascinating to read, that we wouldn't get to hear about otherwise if things like the arts weren't really important. So we just need to be really careful with what's high economic value, but what's social good, and what's, you know, what's, what's social good. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, you're absolutely right. That's such a salient and important point for us to consider. Um, well, I just want to say that I'm really grateful that you took the time to have this conversation with me. Everything you mentioned was extremely insightful. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you shortly. And um, yeah, I forgot to say thank you again for talking to me early morning as well. But yeah, I hope you have a great day. And you too. And I'm hoping to see you again soon, Claire. Yeah, yeah me as well. Thank you. Okay, Have a good one. See you now. You Bye. Okay, so that was the end of our third episode. We really hope you've enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook. Yes, we have a Facebook now. And let us know if you have any comments, thoughts, or questions. See you later for episode four. Bye.